today's not going to be as fun as we normally have our Sundays. Today's going to be a very, very serious subject. And that's because the title of the sermon, of course, it starts with amazing. But the title is this, Amazing Justice. Amazing Justice. And I'll tell you a little bit why we're preaching on this today. It does have to do with grace. Amazing Justice. And we're going to look at a very unusual scripture. And there's a lot of scriptures like this in the Bible, a lot of them. But I only chose this one uh, just out of the, randomly out of a hat, out of all the unusual ones that have these three words in it. And I'll show you the three words. Isaiah 30, 18 says this, The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Everybody say gracious. gracious. Um, what this really means is it means that God waits as long as it, it possibly can for you to finally receive His grace. I mean, He, he waits to your, the last breath that you breathe on earth in hopes that you will receive His grace. He does everything He can. He appears to you through mountains, through the sun. He speaks to your spirit. He sends people to your life, preachers. He uses the internet. He uses whatever He can for you to receive His grace. And He waits and waits and waits in hopes that He can be gracious to you, that you'll receive that, that He may have mercy on you. Everybody say mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Now, um, here's what I want to do. The first five minutes of this sermon is going to be a little bit boring but it's because I need to set a foundation for the rest of the message, okay? So if you can spend the next five minutes really receiving the information, I promise you, you will get a very deep revelation, okay? So justice, mercy, and grace. Um, these are three attributes of God. Um, God's attributes never run out because it is who He is. It's not just what He does, it's who He is. Um, the attributes of God are in all full effect all of the time. In other words... Um, one attribute is God is immutable. It says in Hebrews 6, immutable. Immutable means he cannot change. Immutability, you know, you get the word mutant, like a mutant mutates. God will never mutate because he he's perfect, so he can never change. He's immutable. The Bible says God is good. That means he's always good all of the time, and he can't not be good. That's an attribute of God. It says God is love. He's always love, and everything he does is love. Okay, here's three attributes, grace, mercy, and justice. God is always, always full of grace, always full of mercy, and always just, all of the time. Um, a lot of people think that sometimes some attributes are leading and other ones are following behind. For instance, we think, well, in the Old Testament, he was a God of justice, and now in the New Testament, he's a God of mercy. Okay, that means that God changed. He can't change. He's 100% just, 100% merciful, and 100% gracious all of the time. A lot of us think in our minds that God is a, a, a hundred, is God is a just God when we've done wrong, but He's a gracious God when we act right. No, He's 100% all the time. Some people think that He's 49% merciful and then 51% gracious, and so the grace leads. That's not true. He's 100% all the time. Are you tracking with me? Now, the reason this is sometimes weird for um, theologians or people who are studying the Bible is because, here's what, and you, this should be on your handout, and it's up here on the screen. Grace is giving someone what they don't deserve, okay? Justice is giving someone what they do deserve. So how can God be 100% gracious and 100% just at the same time? Uh, in fact, let me just, let's go over this a little bit. If I was to say that God's grace is in your life, you've received God's grace, that means you get something you don't deserve. What do you not deserve it starts with the letter H, but you get it if you've received His grace. Heaven. Heaven. So you could put heaven on your notes. You could put heaven. H. Man, this is embarrassing. I should have remembered how to say H-E-A. When you're, listen, when you're up here in front of everybody, sometimes your spelling just, just, just goes H-E-A-P. 
Yeah, I'm just making sure. Okay, it's nerve-wracking when there's lights on you and cameras and people are, are, are staring at you. So stop staring at me and we'll get through this. Okay, mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. What is it that we actually deserve but we're not getting because of God's mercy? And it starts with an H. Hell, very good. Okay, that is that because of the, because of the mercy of God, we don't get hell. Because of the grace of God, we do get heaven. And here's the tough one. What is it that we do deserve that would actually be just? And the answer to that would be punishment or payment. We would have to pay for our sins. I'm going to put punishment. In other words, you deserve to have to pay for your sins if you're going to live with a perfect almighty God in eternity in heaven all the time. This is actually what should, you should get justice. And here's the thing. God's a God of justice. He's always just, he's always merciful, and he's always gracious. Right? Are you still tracking with me? I'm almost done with the theological stuff. We're going to get into a good sermon in a second. Please stay with me. Okay. Another word for justice would be morally equal. When you were born, were you born morally equal with God or were you born unequal with God? Unequal. I, I, I don't think everybody's listening. I just want to make sure everybody's listening. When you were born, were you born equal with a perfect creator, all-powerful, omnipotent being or were you born unequal? Okay. Another word for unequal would be inequity, like an inequitable loan. It's an unequal loan. It's unequal, okay? If you change the E in inequity, you get iniquity, which is the Bible word for inner sin. Everybody understand? Inner, transgression is the outer sin. Iniquity is the inner sin. In other words, transgression is murder. Iniquity is hate. Transgression is, is, is adultery or sexual immorality. Um, iniquity is lust. Uh, transgression is gossip. Iniquity is um, jealousy or bitterness on the inside. Okay, everyone understands inequity. Okay, inequity, iniquity is sin. It means that we are unequal with God. Sin, no matter how much you weigh your life against a perfect God, you always come out unbalanced. You are never equal with a perfect God. Okay, never. Equal. So now let's get into the sermon. The the way the scales of justice work, the way people think they work is they think that the prosecutor who's trying to put you in jail for your crime and make you pay for your crime, they think that he puts all of his information on one side and then the defense attorney who's trying to keep you out of jail puts all of his information on the other side and people think that whichever one weighs the most wins. If the defense attorney shows that you know all these things and you're innocent, then you're innocent. If the prosecutor shows all these things that you did wrong, then you're guilty. That's not how the scales of justice work. In fact, if you look at old scales of justice, the, the old ones back in the day, the word justice is never written on the middle. The word justice is written on one of the sides. The way it actually works in a court of law is the district attorney who's trying to keep you out of jail, not make you pay for whatever they think you did, and the prosecutor who's trying to put you in jail and make you pay, they put all of their information on one side. And then justice is on the other side. And when the judge of the court brings a verdict, the verdict is supposed to be the application of justice. The judge renders this side. In other words, he hears everything good and bad. All the evidence, everything they said, good and bad, you did, you didn't do, and all of that's on one side. And then the court, the judge says, based on all of this, I find you... Uh, guilty and you need to pay $3,000 and go to jail for 30 days and then the scales balance out. Or the judge says, okay, I've heard everything and I find you innocent and you are free to go and then the scales balance out. 
So the judge is justice and supposed to render justice. Um, let me keep going and see if I can explain it even more. Um, you and I, we love justice. We actually love it, okay? When somebody does you wrong, when somebody offends you or hurts your feelings, you want them to ask your forgiveness because you think they deserve, what's the word? Punishment. They deserve punishment. If someone were to hurt one of your children, you think they deserve Okay, if someone were to talk about you behind your back or spread rumors about you, say something about you on social media, or um, someone stole from you, you think they deserve... You love justice. You love it. You love it. Except when you do something wrong, then you want mercy. If someone, if your child did something wrong or your child made a mistake and they're coming after your child, you don't want justice then. You actually want mercy for your child right if you hurt somebody's feelings or you do something wrong you don't want justice you want mercy right we understand y'all look at me like you don't understand okay let me let me go even more um this past week listen i'm not perfect i got a lot of problems just look at me and this past week i did something very good i reached out and i intentionally went overboard to try to help somebody who's not part of our church in a way that i thought they would be very very blessed i did the right thing and they turned around into something very underhanded, very underhanded, very behind my back. And they actually did something to come back and attack and hurt me and the people that were involved. Okay, When that happened, I wanted justice. I can't believe you did this to me. There needs to be payment. There needs to be some kind of retribution. Something needs to happen for you to pay for what you did. But about three or four weeks ago, I did something and I really offended somebody and I really hurt them. I didn't mean to, but you know, I, I, I did. Because no one's perfect and a pastor makes a hundred decisions a week affecting hundreds of lives. I did something and I, I look back and think, I can't believe I did that. I was trying to help, I didn't, they got hurt. Now when they got hurt, I didn't want justice. I wanted mercy. Please show me mercy. We're getting justice and mercy. We understand it? Okay, here's the point. God is always justice. He's always merciful. He's always gracious. Now here's what we think happens. At the end of our life, we think that this God of the universe, this, this, remember, God is justice. He is justice. He is, he can't not be just. He can't not be just. We think that at the end of our life, God sees all of our good and all of our bad. And he weighs it, and if our good weighs more, we get into heaven. If our bad weighs more, we go to hell. That is not what happens at the end of your life. Listen real close. At the end of your life, Every single thing you've done, good and bad, every thought, every motive, every single penny of money that you spent is judged by God. In fact, the Bible says every single word you've ever spoken since birth is judged by the creator of the universe. All the good words, all the bad words. All the good motives, all the bad motives. All the times you worshipped, all the times you didn't, all the times you gave, all the times you were stingy. Everything of your life gets weighed on one side. Everything. Every thought you've ever... Even the thoughts you're thinking right now while I'm preaching is going to get judged. So they better be very good thoughts. Um, and so all that's on one side. And then the God of the universe, who is justice, He sits on the other side of the scale. Now listen. It's like having 20 million tons on this side and four or five feathers on this side. And you can jump up and down. And you can beg and you can plead. 
And you can say, God, I went to church and I served you for 50 years and I gave all my money to the poor. And all of those good deeds is like adding two or three more feathers on your side. In fact, you can get all of your friends, all of your church, your spouse, your parents, and your children, and all of their good works and put it all on your side. And that's adding another four or five feathers to 20 million tons. Anytime anything imperfect is weighed against our God, it will always be lacking. I don't care how good you lived your life. I don't care how many times you went to church. I don't care how many sermons you preached. I don't care how many people you led to the Lord. You will always be found out of balance with a perfect God. So what did justice demand for you to be equally balanced with a perfectly righteous, all-powerful all-knowing God. What needed to happen for these scales to be balanced out? I'm going to teach you. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. So in, in 1986, March 21st, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they produced a magazine called The Crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was not a Christian publication. It is not preachers that got together. This was atheists, Christians, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, all these doctors, medical doctors, scientists, not Christians, medical doctors got together. They took all of the historical documents of the ancient world, the Bible and every other historical document. They did all their research and they put together exactly what took place the day that Jesus was crucified on the cross. So I want to show you and teach you exactly what needed to happen for these scales. to. Be. I want to show you what your sin cost, in other words. You said earlier that when someone does someone wrong, they need to be, there needs to be a consequence. There has to be payment. There has to be punishment. That is what, that's what perfection is. Justice is done the, God's way is actually perfect. So how can God be 100% just with us, giving us what we do deserve, and then gracious, giving us what we don't deserve at the same time? It started with a scourging. The Bible says in John 19.1, Pilate had Jesus scourged. Now this was a Roman scourging. It was not a Jewish scourging, and I'm going to tell you why that's important in a little bit. But as far as the scourging, I'm going to show you some very graphic pictures as well uh, from this report, from this medical journal. The word scourged was one of the most horrific words used in the ancient world. When the decision was made to scourge an individual, the victim was first stripped of his clothing. So his entire flesh would be open and uncovered. Remember the Bible says they, caught, they cast lots for the clothes of Jesus. He had such nice clothes, in all honesty, the soldiers gambled for it. So he was wearing no clothes. The victim's hands were then tied over his head to a scourging post, and his wrists were securely shackled in the metal rings to restrain his body from movement. When in this locked position, the victim could not wiggle or move at all to avoid or dodge any of the lashes. The Romans were professionals at scourging. They took great delight in knowing they were the best in the entire world at the time in punishing victims with cruel acts of torture. The mere anticipation of a scourging sentence would cause most victims to commit suicide any way they possibly could as to avoid the possibility of a scourging. In other words, when someone was at trial, if they thought there was even a chance they were going to be found guilty and the sentence would be scourging for their crime, they would actually try to commit suicide any way they could. The sadistic blows that would tear the victim's flesh were caused by a scourging whip. It was a short wooden handle 
with 24 strips of leather. On the end of each strip of leather, there would be fragments of glass, barbed wire, and jagged fragments of bone. Most often, two soldiers would carry out this punishment simultaneously. At the ends of the scourging whips, it would sink into the victim's flesh and body. Then the soldier would jerk back the scourge, which would tear pieces of human flesh from the body. The victim's back, legs, stomach, upper chest, and face would soon be disfigured by the slashing blows of the whip. I want to read you, and I know this is very, very difficult to hear, but I think that the fact that he went through it for us, we should at least listen to it. Um, There's a Messianic scripture that tells exactly what Jesus looked like after his scourging. Isaiah 52, 14 says, Many were appalled when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. From his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was even a man. Um, In the New Testament, Paul writes about a Jewish scourging that was 39 to 40 times. Remember, with each time, it was 24 different pieces that would go into his back. This was not a Jewish scourging, it was a Roman scourging. Romans had an unlimited amount of times that they could scourge somebody. It was given to the soldiers that were carrying it out. They could do it as much as they wanted to. In most cases in Rome at the time, they would finally stop the scourging when two things happened. When the victim's spine was completely exposed or when his or her bowels spilled out through open wounds. Because of the massive loss of bodily fluids, the victim would experience excruciating thirsts, often fainting from the pain and frequently going into cardiac arrest. And I want to remind you, when they tried to give Jesus the gall that was actually a numbing medicine, um, not only was he dying of thirst, and, and, and was thirst, but he could have taken that for pain, and he chose not to because that was part. That was part of justice. Um, Isaiah 50 verse 6 says this, I offered my back. I offered it. I actually gave them. I gave them my back to those who beat me. I offered my face to those who plucked out the hair from my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. You have to understand God's perfect. God will not punish somebody more than they deserve and He won't punish them less. He's a perfect God. He's perfect. Perfect. Uh, Let me just take a minute and and stop and just say this to you. If somebody murdered one of your family members and at the trial um, the person was found guilty and there was proof and they did it and right before sentencing a friend of that person steps up and says, listen, I love this guy. I don't want them to go to jail for what they did. So I'll go to jail for what they did. Would that appease your anger knowing that the person who killed your family member got off, got off free and clear and someone else took the punishment? Is that justice, yes or no? No, no. But what if at the trial, the person you thought killed your family member actually didn't and the friend steps up and admits and says, I actually did it. And there was DNA proof and there was um, video surveillance and all that. And the person that stepped up and said, I did, they actually did do it. And they went to jail for the crime that was committed. Would that appease your anger? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, listen. Jesus didn't just take your punishment. He actually took your sin. He actually took your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ who knew no sin to actually become sin on our behalf. To actually become sin. He, be, he, didn't, he didn't just take your punishment. He actually took all of your sin on Him. And God declared Him guilty. 
That's why God, his father, rejected him at the end and said, and Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Because God can't even look at sin. He can't even look at it. That's how perfect he is. Can't even, can't even get near it. Which means, which a revelation is, if God lives inside of you today, your spirit is perfect. Here's how. Jesus took your sin. But John Paul, what, 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 what about what I did last night? He already took it. What about what I'm going to do three years from now? He already took it. Nobody goes to hell for sin. They go to hell for unbelief. He already took your sin. So out of all the historical documents of the day, the only person throughout world history that we can find who was scourged and then crucified was Jesus. It was Jesus. It was straight from scourging to crucifixion. Here's a picture from the, American, um, from the Journal of the American Medical Association of what the wrist, what the hands look like. As you can see, the nails, the spikes, they didn't go into the hands like you see in the movies. They actually went into the, um, into the, in the person's wrist. And here's why. 30 years before, when Rome began to crucify, um, they put people on the cross for their sins. And after a day or so, they wouldn't bleed to death. I'll tell you why in a second. They wouldn't bleed to death. They could actually last up to four days on a cross. But when they put it in their hands, after the first day or so, some of the victim's friends would come out and overthrow the guards, the soldiers that were there, and so then they would get up on a ladder and they would actually pull the victim off of the cross. If it was in their hands, they could pull it out. So after that, the Romans decided they were going to put a hundred, a, a garrison, that's a hundred, with a centurion in charge, a hundred soldiers to watch these guys on the cross. But then they thought, man, that's a waste of our money. We don't want to spend all of our time and energy. Why don't we do this? They learned how to put it right through the wrist so it couldn't come off, so your hand couldn't come off. In fact, if you feel there's a soft spot, and you, they, put it, they learned how to put it in between the bones so it wouldn't even hit a blood vessel. They were masters of crucifixion, masters of it. Um, you can see a picture of what it looked like on the feet of Jesus. Um, in the movies, you see where the, the person's standing on a little platform on the cross. It wasn't like that. There was one nail in the feet, one nail that went through both feet and the upper foot, and you can feel later on on your foot, there's a soft place for that where it goes through the bone, straight through the cross, straight through the cross. Um... The reason they did this wasn't just to keep them on the cross. It was also because it was more painful. In fact, if you look at the word crucify, it actually comes from the word excruciating. See the C-R-U-C-I. Um, the word crucify in the Latin, which is where we get, uh, where we get um, Greek words and where we get English words from, in Latin, C-R-U-C-I is cross, cruci, and then F-Y means to fasten, to fasten on a cross. Here's a picture of what it looked like when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Um, the only way a person could breathe when they were on the cross uh, was to lift themselves up because you could inhale, but your diaphragm could not exhale unless you pulled yourself up. This is why most all victims on a cross died of asphyxiation, which is suffocating to death. They didn't die of blood loss. They died because they didn't have any more strength left to pull themselves up, to expand their diaphragm, to be able to exhale. This is why... Um, towards the end when they finally wanted the victim to die, the way they would kill them is they would break their legs. They would instruct the soldiers, go break the victim's legs. After they broke their legs, they could not breathe anymore. And I want to remind you, every time Jesus took a breath, every time he took a breath, listen, he just got done being scourged. And it wasn't one of those crosses from Home Depot that are all flat, you know. Every time he breathed a breath, it was part of our punishment. Here's what I want you to see. Every hair they plucked out of his beard, the scales are getting more and more balanced. Every time they beat them, they're balancing out even more. Every breath he took on the cross after being scourged, they balanced out even more so that you could be equal with God. 
so that the punishment that you do deserve was put on the person who you're in covenant relationship with. Just like um, when I got married, uh, I got a tax break. You know, you, you, beforehand, Micah didn't have a tax break. I didn't. Then you get married, and that's something that's because of that covenant, here's something that's added to it. Because of the covenant of salvation, here's what takes place. What happened to him was for me. You, you understand how the schedule? Okay. So let me tell you, remind you this. I told you that they, they break the victim's legs. Uh, there's a messianic scripture that says the Lamb of God will not have one bone broken. John 19.33, when they came to Jesus, they found him dead already. So they did not break his legs. These things happened that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Jesus did not suffocate to death. Here's a picture of his heart, of what his heart would have looked like. Uh, you know, the Bible says that they shoved a spear into his side. It went through his bones and through his lungs into his heart. And the reason we know this is because the Bible says that water and blood spewed out when they did that. That proves two things scientifically. One, it proves he was already dead. The second thing he proves is that he died of cardiac arrest. In other words, listen, he died of a broken heart. Our Lord died of a broken heart. I want to remind you of a scripture, John 10, 18. No man takes my life. I give it up willingly. Nobody's going to take it. I give it up willingly. God's justice, perfect justice, had to be satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. So listen, I'm on this, I'm on this, this, this balance scales and I'm saying, God, I did this and I served and I raised kids right way in church and I gave and I preached. And no matter what I do, I'm jumping up and down. I'm screaming and I'm begging, please, God, please let me into heaven. I want to be with you for all of eternity. That's not supposed to happen. Well, that's how much God weighs. <laughs> this was God on this side. That's hilarious. No, no matter what I do, the scales won't balance out. And then finally, here's what happens. At the end, when I say, God, I trusted in Jesus. Listen, Jesus steps on my scale. And just like that, the whole thing balances out. There we go. Hold on, let me get perfect balance. I'm a titan, so I don't fall off. There we go, just like that. Perfect balance. Perfect balance. That's what the God... Now, I'm going to read you a scripture, and you know the scripture, but you're going to see it in a whole new light. Okay, 1 John 1, 9, watch this. If we confess our sins, watch. He is faithful, and it doesn't say gracious. It doesn't say merciful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, God is not even 1% unjust he's a hundred percent just all of the time the way this this um sermon came about was i was having my my quiet time with jesus and normally in my jesus time in the morning i don't study for sermons that's my thing because if i start studying for a sermon my mind goes you know so i'm just sitting there and i'll read my bible sometimes and sometimes i'll just see what he's trying to tell me just with no bible just sitting there i was reading my bible and i came across romans 3 23 through 24 and it says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet now God in his grace declares us not guilty if we trust in Jesus. Okay, so I read this in my quiet time and I had this thought. <clears throat> that is such a good scripture for a sermon in this series on grace. I said, you know what? People are going to love to hear that they're not guilty. They're going to love it. It's a great scripture. And I'm sitting there and then I had this thought. I said, but God... You and I, we know the truth about me. We know that I'm really guilty. Now, I hope everyone else gets blessed by the Scripture. I hope they love it. But God, 
me and you know, according to my life, I'm actually guilty. I mean, you know the things I've done, you know I'm guilty. And it was like God jumped off of his throne and the whole universe shook. And it's like he said, am I a liar? And I said, no, God, you're not a liar. I'm just saying, spiritually speaking, yeah, we're not guilty. But in the natural, what I can see and taste and smell and hear and, and feel, I'm guilty. And God yelled again, am I an unjust liar? And so I, he kept saying liar in my, it wasn't out loud, it's in my spirit. So I thought, well, I'm going to look up and see if you're a liar or not. 1 Samuel 15, 29, the strength of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. Titus 1, 2, resting in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. God, your word says you're not a liar, but I feel like I'm guilty. And it's like God said this. Are you telling me that as I watched my son take your sins, that it wasn't worth what he did? I watched him being scourged for you. I watched every hair from his beard being plucked out. If there was ever a time throughout all of the history of the universe that I would have accommodated sin, if there was ever a time I would have been around sin, if there was ever a time I would have held sin in my hands, it was when my son took your sin. But I stood back and I watched. I did not help him. I did not get near him. I forsake my son so I could never forsake you. I made him guilty. And you're going to tell me that you feel like you're guilty? He took all of your guilt. I watched it. If I could have held him, I would have held him, but I didn't. And it's like I heard God do this. It's like I heard him get a big old gavel and up in heaven go, John Paul, not guilty. Jesus, guilty. And do you know we were sentenced? We were born. We were sentenced to hell. You have been sentenced to heaven. You have to go. If you put your trust in Jesus, you got to go. I'm sorry. You can, you, no matter what you do and these awful things, all, no matter, listen, you have been sentenced to heaven if your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If there's anything more you could do than you're saying this, what Jesus did wasn't enough. Well, now I need to pay for this because I feel guilty, so I should do this to make up for it. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then what, then, then what he went through wasn't good enough. Are you saying Jesus needed to go through more for you? See, God is perfectly just. Perfectly just. Um, God's mercy did not give me what I deserve. God's grace gave me what I don't deserve. And God's justice gave Jesus what I did deserve. Uh, let me tell you one story that will close out the sermon. It will bring everything together. The whole sermon was for this true story. In World War, the end of World War I, uh, the United States allocated some funds for the orphans in Europe. Um, there were um, so many fatherless, motherless children all through Europe at the end of World War I. And so the U.S. was trying to help them out. At one of the orphanages, a very old and thin man brought in a very frail and thin little girl. He went to the head of the orphanage and he said, I'd like for you to take care of my little girl, please. They asked if she was his daughter, and when he said yes, they said, we are so sorry, but we have limited funds. 
Our policies are as such, we cannot take in any child who still has at least one parent still alive. If we could, we'd take them all in, but we, we, we have limited funds. We can't take every child in. The father said, I've been in prison camps. I'm too old and too sick to even take care of myself. I can't work and my daughter will die if you don't take care of her. They felt great compassion for the little girl and for the man. But they said their hands were tied. There was nothing that they could do. The man said, you mean if I were dead, you could take care of my daughter. You could feed her, clothe her, give her a home to live with you. And they said, yes. So the story says that the father picked up his little girl. He hugged her and kissed her for the very last time. Then he put her hand in the hand of the man at the desk. And he said, I will arrange it as so. The father walked out of the orphanage, down the street, and he hung himself. The reason I tell you that is because one day Jesus said to the father, you mean if I die, they can live with you, have a home with you, walk with you, talk with you, you will provide for them the rest of their life and for all of eternity? And the father said, yes. And Jesus said, I'll arrange it as so. Jesus put my hand in the hand of the Father. He walked out of heaven. And He hung on a cross on a hill called Calvary. So that God could be full of grace, full of mercy, and full of justice at the same time. And that is amazing justice. <laughs> 